Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. Today, I'm speaking with Elise Nelson, president and CEO of Vital Voices, and renowned artist Gail Baker about their artistic collaboration in the name of women's empowerment around the world. Self-described as two crazy women with bold ideas, this dynamic duo came together to create a book and exhibition called Vital Voices, 100 Women Using Their Power to Empower. The project includes portraits of 100 global women leaders redefining power and celebrates Vital Voice's mission to support women's leadership to solve the world's greatest challenges. We talk about how women lead differently and how that leadership style is sorely needed right now, the power of art to transform the way we think about things and shift culture, and the gratification in creating art that makes an impact and inspires others. These two are like Thelma and Louise, but this podcast has a happy ending. And now here's my conversation with Elise Nelson and Gail Baker. Elise Nelson and Gail Baker, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thank you. Thank you. Be here. So Elise, I'd like to start with you. Tell us a little bit about Vital Voices, how it started, and what your mission is there. So Vital Voices was founded 24 years ago, actually, on the heels of the UN Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing, China. And if you know that conference, you may know that it was the largest gathering ever of women activists and leaders in history. And what came out of that gathering was the single most, to date, progressive document signed by almost every nation in the world on advancing women and girls and their rights. And so, quite frankly, when the U.S. government came back, then the delegation was led by Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton. Madeleine Albright soon thereafter became Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton being First Lady, and really wanting to make sure that they were not just looking at how do we advance women in our own country, but how do we actually be a voice and a champion to advance women around the world? And Vital Voices was really born from there. It was actually initially a U.S. government initiative. I was one of the first staff people and then helped to found the nonprofit outside the government. And we did move the initiative outside the government because it became bigger than what we could do inside the government, quite frankly. What we knew is that we wanted to be nonpartisan. We wanted to be able to speak out on the important issues and not worry about one political party or another. We felt that we were a place where if you believe in advancing the role of women around the world and women's leadership to solve the world's greatest challenges, then you needed to be part of this. We also knew we wanted to bring in the private sector. We wanted to bring in everyday women and girls around the world and let them know that this was the place for them. This was the network for them. We also saw thousands of women around the world start up Vital Voices chapters and networks. They were wanting to be more engaged. And so those were our beginnings, really just around the call of how do we shine a spotlight and support these voices around the world that were not being heard, women who were in the trenches, on the front lines of change, but they were not household names. They were not recognized. They were not supported. They didn't have visibility and credibility. And what we do today is very much the same, but 
we have over the last 24 years figured out what is that recipe that extraordinary women leaders who are on the front lines of change need to take their bold vision for change in their communities to scale. So what we do is we search the world for these change makers and we invest in them and their vision, which I think really differentiates us. We don't say, oh, here are the problems and we've got the solutions. We know that women in communities know what their community needs. They may need help in delivering that, and that's where we come in. But we provide training, mentoring, a network of their peers, visibility and credibility, grants and financial support, sometimes even emergency assistance to help them along their path. We are now providing more technology support. We've also brought in more wellness support because one of the things that we've recognized working with thousands of women across 182 countries around the world is that women often take care of themselves last. And so that's a place where we've stepped in to say, actually, change doesn't happen overnight. This is a marathon, not a sprint. You need to take care of yourself on this journey. And that's also been, I think, very important for me and for all of us also working at Vital Voices. So ultimately, that's what we do. Today, we've invested in 18,000 women across 182 countries globally, but they in turn have impacted the lives of millions. Just this past year, we know of the 1,797 women that we directly invested and supported just in the past year, those women went on to impact the lives of 3 million people directly because of our support just in that one year. So you think about the ripple effect of investing in those leaders, it's huge. And that's why we do what we do. And quite frankly, the reason I've been at Vital Voices so long, is just the incredible inspiration from people who are making the world a better place. And what a better use of time than to stand behind and support them to achieve their bold and quite frankly, courageous vision. Wow, what an incredible lofty goal. And the fact that you execute on it in this sort of one-stop shop way where you provide them with everything they need. Of course, leadership can take a lot of different forms. What are some of the things that the women you are supporting do? I mean, are they in government or in business? I mean, all of the above? Absolutely. I would say they're all of the above. They could be a woman who many women leaders we find sort of find their calling because of a personal experience. So for example, a woman maybe who is trafficked herself is able to escape the traffickers, the human traffickers, and able to turn that pain into power, to take that pain that she felt and figure out how do I use that as power to drive me and support others and pull others out and make sure this doesn't happen to them or make sure that I can support them through my own experiences. So it could be a woman who is leading a shelter that has supported thousands of women and children who've been victims of violent crimes and help them become survivors and live a different life. It could be an entrepreneur who is using her social enterprise, but it is a business, to stem climate change through innovative means. It could be a political leader who is trying to bring forth new legislation to bring about greater equality. So these are really women who, quite frankly, are stepping up in their communities with locally sourced solutions to solve the world's greatest challenges, whether it be climate change, economic inequity, racial justice, violence against women. Honestly, it's wide open because there are so many challenges that we face. But I think what I've learned over the years is that women bring something different And they also lead differently. And I think for a long time, even women ourselves in leadership positions, because leadership was sort of very much a 
male paradigm or male construct. And I think that women, as they have come forth and really redefined leadership, they've done that by leading through compassion and empathy and collaboration, crossing lines that might typically divide us, empowering others, and being very mission-driven about what they do, whether that be in business or in government. But also they bring those new solutions because they haven't been at those decision-making tables. They think outside the box because they haven't been part of the box. (laughs) And I think that's what's powerful. And quite frankly, that's what's needed right now to solve those challenges. Absolutely. So Gail, let's talk a little bit about you and your background. I'm a longtime fan, having first discovered you through your New Yorker covers which are always so transporting and full of life. I mean, your work is exuberant, it's colorful, it's adventurous, often documenting your travels all around the world. And there's also often a focus on women when it's not on dogs, that is. And (laughs) (laughs) I just love to hear what inspires you and your art. Well, thank you. And I started my career as a fashion illustrator. Like that's what I always wanted to be since I was, a little girl kind of. So when I graduated from art school, wanting to be a fashion illustrator, that was very focused on women. So women have always been kind of like my favorite thing to paint and draw. So over the years, as I branched out into regular illustration and painting and painting anything, really, I still have always had a focus on women. And I've done portraits, but not very many until I did this project with Vital Voices. So portraits, I mean, I won't say they're new for me, but to this degree, they are. And I'm very inspired by my granddaughter. And I've been painting her a lot because my daughter, I guess she's two months old. And my daughter's always sending me photos. I like to be inspired around what's important in my life and what I'm seeing. Well, that's a lucky granddaughter. So Elise, why don't you tell us about the project you and Gail worked together on, Vital Voices, 100 Women Using Their Power to Empower. It was an art exhibition with an accompanying book. What was the genesis of this project? Well, it goes back a couple of years to one year after the Women's March. So 2018, Washington Post. I live in Washington, DC. That's where Vital Voices is based did a spread on art created by women artists, really reflecting what had happened in the year since the march, what were they thinking about. Gail can probably talk in more detail about exactly what they asked. But I saw this beautiful painting that she had with a woman and her dog and a superwoman cape. And it was around voting being your superpower. And I was really intrigued by it. And actually the whole spread, it was He opened it up and it was the whole, and I was like, wow. And I took a picture of it. I thought, this is really incredible. And I actually come from a family of artists and have always believed in the powers of art to really transform the way that we think about things. And there's been studies on this and they've shown that when a politician gives a speech, it's almost like the people sitting there listening feel like they should be thanked for listening. (laughs) But when a musician, or a poet, or an artist creates this work of art, performs, we're thanking them. It is a gift to us. So if you think about that, I mean, the way in which art hits you and speaks to you is a different part of your brain, a different part of your body. 
And what I've certainly seen around the world with different women artists, whether they be women who are using dance to help girls recover from human trafficking and own their bodies again, this wonderful woman we work with in India named Shahini Chakraborty, or Panmela Castro in Brazil, who uses graffiti to take to the streets and tell the story of how violence against women is a crime, even though the police maybe are not responding quick enough. I'm a really big believer that the greatest unfinished business for women and girls around the world in terms of us achieving equality with men and boys and being valued in the same way, that is the greatest unfinished business. And I think that the arts and culture can be so powerful the arts and culture can truly be used as a means to shift culture, to shift behavior. As I said, I mean, it does speak to us in a different way. And so I think for me, I really wanted to explore that further. I wanted to figure out how do we better utilize the arts and culture towards our mission? It's another, I think, beautiful way to make people think differently. And so honestly, I was so taken with her artwork. Basically, I sent an email to Gail. I told her everything about Vital Voices and that I would love to work with her on a project. And I put my phone number. And I remember I was in San Francisco and I had actually just flown over early in the morning after seeing that beautiful piece of artwork. And I was thinking about it. And I looked her up, sent her an email, and literally it was like tick, tick tick and my phone rang. <laughs> and it was Gail. And it was just from then on out, we were just collaborators. We were just partners in crime. Initially, she created a portrait for an exhibition of a number of different artists. It was this art of disruption evening that we were hosting the night before our Global Leadership Awards. And that was in 2018. In 2019, she actually designed the look of everything. She did beautiful artwork for our big global leadership awards. And then at the end of that, in late 2019, we began to talk about this project, which seemed like a crazy, crazy idea. A hundred extraordinary women painting them and telling their stories, but really in that first person narrative. I mean, I know you're a prolific artist, but 100 portraits, that is a seriously heavy lift. What made you want to say yes to that? I mean, actually, Elisa's initial idea was a hundred different artists. And I remember she mentioned it to me and I was like, wow, that would be a lot of work. That would be really hard. Just managing a hundred different artists. Just managing that. And then I remember when she called me to talk about it and I could tell that she was going to ask me to do all of them. And I didn't even let her finish. Like I was just like, I'm in. Yes, I'll do it. And I think we had, because initially the book was going to come out in March of 2020 to correspond with the Global Leadership Awards. So that was all supposed to happen at the same time. And we had less than a year. We had nine months or something insane like that. So once we started talking about it, when the reality of like exactly how many I would have to get done every month in order to be done, because you have to remember, maybe we had eight months, but that meant I had like three months, four months, whatever, because it had to be printed. It had to be designed. It had to be printed, like all that. So I think it was probably about halfway through where we realized 
and this was pre-pandemic, that the goal of having the book done for the Global Leadership Awards was not realistic. We just, we couldn't do it. It wasn't possible. And we moved that to September. So the Global Leadership Awards were in March. So we moved the book to September. And then the other thing, Elise started floating this idea because the Global Leadership Awards were at the Kennedy Center. And she said, well, maybe we could have an exhibition of the portraits at the Kennedy Center. And in my head, I'm going like, right, like (laughs) the Kennedy Center is just going to give me an exhibition, me, who they don't know, they don't know my work, whatever, like that's never going to happen. And when that actually became a reality, that was crazy. And I had to have everything. I'm in here to say that the president of the Kennedy Center then and now is a woman. She's actually now on our board. But she and I had been talking about this is a special year for women. We're commemorating 25 years since the Beijing Women's Conference. We're also commemorating 100 years since some women, not all women, but some women in this country, a stepping stone, got the right to vote and run for elected office. So it was an important year. So continue, Gail, had to. It's always the the mafia of women who are helping women. (laughs) (laughs) So then the goal became to get the exhibition ready. And I think it all had to be finished by January. And it was intense. I've never worked that hard ever. And I was taking other work as well. I'm a freelance artist. I mean, that's what I do. So it was a lot of work. Some of the portraits came really easily and some of them were really hard. Like sometimes I would paint someone and I always research them first. I did a lot of research each time. Like I look at different photos and I watch video if there's video of them and I listen to their story and it helps to inform me what colors I'm going to use or how I'm going to paint her or whatever. So I would finish a batch and I would send them to Elise. And I think I remember the first batch that I sent, I didn't hear back from her right away, like for a day or whatever. I don't remember how long it was, but I wrote her and I said, okay, so we have to establish some guidelines here, like insecure artist right here who needs feedback right away. Like you got to respond because then I'll think you'll hate everything. And so we got into a good routine of, I'd send a batch, she'd respond, and sometimes her response would be, oh my God, they're amazing. Other times she'd be like, no, you're not quite getting her. And honestly, I didn't send them unless I thought I was done. So when she would say that I didn't get them, some of the times I would just like, oh my God, what am I not getting? Like, I don't know what I, I don't know. And it turned out that sometimes the photo that I was painting from didn't actually look enough like the woman. You said your background's in fashion, illustration, and your work is so beautifully decorative. And this is a kind of activist art that you did for this book. I mean, I consider it that way because I think of activist art as inspiring people and propelling them to learn more about the person, the organization, the cause, the policy, whatever it may be. I mean, like Elise said, art hits you in a different way. So have you ever done this kind of thing before? I mean, have you ever thought of yourself as an activist? No, not really. I mean, my first New Yorker cover was celebrating gay marriage. So it was two women. 
And it was a really big deal when it came out because it was, what year was it? It was, I have it on my wall here. It was 2012. And I remember like it made a really big impact. It was the first time I'd done anything that was so, I mean, I've worked on advertising campaigns that a lot of people saw or whatever, but this was the first time my experience was so personal for many people. And I got emails and fan letters and it meant a lot to a lot of people. And I did a bunch of interviews and people would ask me that question, like, oh, do you think of yourself as an activist? It's like, no, I'm just an illustrator. Like I've never put my mind to, well, how can my work make an impact? But over the past seven years, I began to do that more. And really in the last three years, I mean, actually since Trump got elected, that was a big turning point for me. The day after the election, I was actually on a painting retreat alone and I just started painting and I painted two things that I sent to the New Yorker. One, the Women's March had just been announced and I painted this sea of this painting of women's faces and I sent it to the art director at the New Yorker and I also painted a face with a tear like rolling down and I sent them both to her and she was actually had just committed to editing this publication called Resist, which was going to be a kind of newspaper magazine of all women artists and their response to the election. And it was going to be published and come out on the day of the first Women's March. So she wrote me back and she said, can I use this? And I mean, I was a little disappointed. She wasn't interested in it for the New Yorker. And I didn't know, I didn't find out until weeks later that she decided to use it on the cover of this Resist publication, which was a big deal. So I think what started to happen after that, and that's why I made the art, voting is my superpower, is I started to ask myself, well, how can what I do, how can my art make a difference? I'm not just sitting here taking editorial jobs to illustrate something for a travel magazine or a food magazine or an ad campaign about mascara or whatever, all the kind of work that I do, which is great and I'm grateful for it, but how can what I do matter? How can I contribute? And I decided that rather than like going door to door and trying to get people to like register for vote to vote, maybe I could create some art that might in some way, inspire voting. I don't even really know what I was thinking. I just decided that that's where I could put my energy. So I made that art for the Washington Post assignment. And the funny thing is is that it paid very little. And people often say, oh, it's great to do this because you're gonna get so much exposure. No money, but lots of exposure. And I've learned that that usually it's not the case. Like usually it's like, you're just doing it to be generous. But in this case, like I can't even, it's amazing how much came from that piece of art. So now I'm always asking myself, how can I contribute? What can I do? And I kind of learned from painting all these women that if I paint women and like really bring out their beauty in a way that makes them feel good, that's something. 
That's a gift. So I'm always thinking about what can I do? How can what I do make a difference? That's great. And Elise, you edited the personal narratives that accompany the portraits. Is that right? Right. How was that experience for you, seeing your work, the sort of this summary, artistic summation of what you do at Vital Voices reflected in the images within their personal narratives? I mean, that must have been something, quite a process. It was. And as Gail said, our original timeline was very aggressive. And the way in which we did those personal narratives, we felt pretty strongly about it because I'm a big believer that women should have control over their own narratives, that it should be their voice speaking for themselves. And I had written a book back in 2012, which was very much about vital voices and telling the stories and the lessons in leadership that we had learned from women. And so I wanted this to be something very different. Obviously, the art makes it very different. So for all of the narratives, I actually interviewed almost every single one of those women. Some of them who didn't have time to do an interview, we would pull quotes, maybe pull something from something they had already done and sort of send that to them for their edits. So we tried to figure out ways to work that captured their voice, but really was something that they felt that they would be very proud of and obviously could work within their time frame. And knowing these are very busy women, some of them trying to get a hold of them during a pandemic. I mean, prime ministers and heads of state, I was shocked that they were willing to give me the time and wanted to be part of this. And I think honestly, once you have a core group of extraordinary women, obviously more women were like, oh, of course, I want to be part of that. That's wonderful. All of the women who were included in this book were actually nominated by women across our network. So a lot of times people ask, well, why this woman and not that woman? And really it's about how people think of them, not just as leaders and people that we admire, but people who are really using their power and position and voice to speak out on important issues. The other thing that we wanted to do is make sure that we had a real diversity of women. So as you say, it really would represent that mission of Vital Voices. So it wasn't just activists or political leaders or people who maybe had the title of a leader. It was also grassroots leaders. It was celebrities, models. I mean, people who maybe would be seen as more unlikely, but who all had that thread of they had an opportunity, they had a voice, and they were using it to give voice, to give power. And I think really to shine a spotlight on that. So Gail, you talked about this really intense time of creating these portraits and researching the women. And so you knew how to portray them. I mean, when you look at the portraits, I can see that you made specific design choices. Maybe it's a textile somebody's wearing or the background they're in front of. Or, I mean, you made Diane von Furstenberg Wonder Woman. That was Elisa's idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It suits her well. But one thing I love about what I like to call creative activism is I mean, as Elise said, it allows the viewers to see issues in a different way because art touches our hearts, but it's also a cathartic process for the artist. So what was that like emotionally, just living with these women and creating their portraits for eight months or however long you were doing it? Sometimes it was intense, especially when I would 
read their story or watch their story and know that they came to the work that they're doing through their own personal hardships and tragedies. Looking into their eyes, knowing what those eyes had seen was intense. And I tried to let that kind of come into the art. And you mentioned the different patterns and this and that. When I research the women, I'm really researching them. I don't put them in anything that they wouldn't wear. If I was doing your portrait, there's a lot of pictures of you out there. I'm looking at what you wear. And if you don't wear red ever, I'm certainly not going to paint you in a red shirt. If I see you wear navy all the time, I'll probably paint you in navy. So once I got really into it, I wanted to try to make each one different. So sometimes I really had to really think out of the box. It was a great thing to walk into my studio to do every day. I felt like it was a real gift. And I feel really lucky to be I know a part of it. Gail's favorites is Dr. Amani, who is from Syria, doctor, and she ran a hospital in a cave underground because so many of the hospitals had been blown up. And I remember Gail saying, oh, she's just one of my favorites to paint. She's just, she's so beautiful. And yeah, I just thought that was amazing because I knew that it had hit her very hard who this woman was, as she says, what her eyes had seen, what she had been through. And it was almost like, kind of, it felt, as she would describe it, that it was like an honor to paint this woman. Because she was like, she's a saint among us. And how amazing to have the opportunity to bring her to life. And I think for these women, you have to remember that some of them, yes, they're iconic. But many of them, they're really alone in what they are doing on a day-to-day basis. There are not people like them around them. They are just caring so much. And so to see themselves depicted in something where they're alongside Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Malala or other, just the household names, for them, that's huge. And it gives them that sort of encouragement and peace to carry on. And that, that is really important. I have always felt like that's one of the things that we do is almost provide that mirror to reflect back the inspiration that we feel from them. It's a really beautiful thing. And it's been wonderful to watch women post about it. And then, of course, when Amanda Gorman, who's on the cover, performed at the inauguration, to see people like Sarah Blakely, who is in her own right, one of the youngest, I think the youngest at the time, self-made female billionaire, totally iconic, post about how proud she was to be in this book alongside Amanda. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful to sort of see sort of the tables being turned a bit and really to see that and the pride in being part of this group of women. Sadly, the exhibit was only, was it open a few days before it had to close for COVID? Was it open at all? Probably about a week. It was open for a week. I flew to DC, I think on the 5th, it was hung on the 6th or 7th. This is March, 2020. Yeah. And so Wednesday it was being hung which you can imagine was just like a massive undertaking. I mean, oh my God, massive, massive undertaking. It took two or three days to hang it. And it was hung. It was finished Thursday night. 
And Friday is when Elise, I can't remember whether it was a text or a call or whatever, but we've been hearing about some of the speakers starting to cancel. They weren't coming. And then Elise was just like, everything's canceled. I had family that was flying in on Saturday. We all did. But I was able to reach my family Friday night and say, don't come. It's all canceled. But then my flight wasn't until March 12th. And I had a hotel and a flight. And I just decided, you know what? It, I mean, honestly, we had no idea how scary everything was then. So I stayed there. And I met the art director from the Washington Post, who's become a friend since that very first illustration I did with her. And she did a beautiful two-page spread that ran in the Washington Post on it that was wonderful. And I walked the exhibition with her and I met friends and family who lived in DC. I met people there. And then some days I literally just went and sat on a bench with my sketchbook alone and watched people because literally thousands of people go through the Hall of Nations every day. It's sometimes packed with people and things hadn't slowed down yet. So sometimes I would just sit and, oh my God, just being a fly on the wall and watching people taking selfies and watching people read the, because there's a little, not a plaque, but a little thing under each one. So watching people study them and was just the coolest thing. What do you hope that people take away from your collaboration? Is there a call to action? I think, quite frankly, the call to action is, one, it is that women lead differently and that difference is needed and we need you. It's really interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this lately that whenever we would develop communication tools at Vital Voices, we would always be communicating to other people about why women were so critical, why we need to invest in women. And now I just kind of realized over this last year, why are we speaking to those other people? We just need to be speaking to women and saying, rise up, it's you. And these women can be your inspiration, but you can be your own inspiration. And so to me, that's what I hope people take from it. The first person narratives are not biographies. They're a moment in time. They're a lesson to be learned. And I hope that people take away from that leadership's not what you thought it was. It's not about the title, position, how many people report to you. It is about the actions that you take, the decisions that you make, the service that you provide. That is what real leadership is, and that is what our world needs. And I think the way that women tend to realize that is that they see it in others. And they realize, wait, I'm like that. That's what I'm doing. I guess I am a leader. So I hope it changes the way that people think about things. And I think it is a beautiful book. And I think that my hope is it sits on people's coffee tables because it's a beautiful book. And they open it and they're inspired by the art. And that draws them in to read the story. And again, going back to art is so powerful in shifting culture. There are a lot of people who bought this book who probably never heard of Vital Voices, who are not necessarily interested in what it is that we do, but they're intrigued by the art and they want something beautiful, but they will be compelled to read and to learn and to see that there is this new model of leadership that's emerging that women are bringing forth. And it's something that they should either get behind or be part of. That's very powerful. I completely agree, by the way. So if people wanted to get more involved at Vital Voices after learning about it now or getting the book, what can they do? And by the way, I would encourage listeners to buy the book from 
you sell it on your website and it includes a donation. Actually, we don't sell the book because we're a nonprofit. So we can't actually sell the book. But what we have done is we have purchased a number of the books and we will give people the book if they make a donation to Vital Voices of $95 more and we'll cover the shipping and all that. So I think that obviously that's a great way to do it because then you are directly supporting our work. And obviously we hope that people do that. And so they can do that directly on our website. But in terms of getting engaged in Vital Voices, I would say one, at the very least, sign up to get our regular communications and what we're doing. Sign up to just learn more about these issues. I would also say tune into the podcast that we have around the women leading change. And it's really built around this book, the current series that we have. But then beyond that, our fellowships and programs are open to any woman anywhere. I mean, you have to apply. I cannot say it's not competitive. It is because we are looking for that spark of leadership. But we're also developing some programs for people who maybe are a bit more aspirational. Maybe they're not necessarily leading that change now, but they desperately want to. And they want to learn those lessons from women. And that's going to be coming on later this spring. I'd say sign up, get engaged, and you can learn more. And obviously, you can always give a donation to Vital Voices. We're always in search of extraordinary, talented women and men to provide training and resources and support. So there are lots of ways to get engaged. You can dip your toe in to start with, just getting our newsletter, but then hopefully we hope to kind of reel you in step by step. Well, I really can't thank both of you enough for coming on the podcast. Your collaboration is sort of like, it's one of those things where two disparate things come together and become something absolutely beautiful and important. And not that what you were doing before wasn't, but it's a whole separate thing. It's really inspiring. It's The book is beautiful. And I just thank you for everything you do, both of you, in Raising Up Women Everywhere. Thank you. And I will just say all of this works because both of us are a little crazy. And crazy, <laughs> you have to be crazy to make change in this world. And I think that the whole team at Vital Voices would absolutely agree with me and say, yes, both you and Gail are kind of crazy. And really, what I mean by that is that you have crazy, bold ideas and you figure out how to do it. And that is what I have loved about partnering with Gail is that she's like, yeah, let's do it. For her, it's not about exposure. It's not about making money. It's about her heart and what she believes in and her passion. And it's just been like a gift to work with Gail and have her as a partner. So anyway. Well, here's to crazy women with bold ideas. <laughs> yes, I agree. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.